This is Bishop Michael Curry, and you're listening to The Way of Love. Welcome to The Way of Love podcast with Bishop Michael Curry, a podcast from the Episcopal Church about following Jesus and changing the world. I'm your host, Sandy Millian. What does love feel like if the person to whom you're communicating love doesn't see it as love? What does love mean when it seems to be punitive to some people? Mm-hmm. When it seems to not fit into a framework where it's understandable. In this episode, Bishop Curry talks to Jeff Chu, who tells us about his extraordinary career as a journalist, farmer, writer, editor, teacher, and Christian thinker, and how he has come to see God moving throughout each of those roles, having spent time among groups of people who radically disagree about the church, about human sexuality, about love itself. He describes some of the lessons he's learned along the way by listening differently and respectfully. Resting on the way of love is receiving the gift of God's grace, peace, and restoration. The two reflect on storytelling, Sabbath, and the ways we are called to pause and unplug, to look back on our experiences, and to begin to understand where God has led us and is currently leading us. Jeff, Welcome to Way of Love, and thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I've got to tell you, you I, I was able to uh, read a, a couple of pieces about you or that you've written, um, but I mean, just in your background, I mean, you grew up, I think I got this right, in Berkeley, California, and Miami, Florida, Chinese-American family, uh, Baptist family, you're the grandson of a Baptist preacher, as am I, uh, and so we share that in common, and yet, One of the most intriguing articles um, about you that you wrote was called Finding Faith on the Farm. So I didn't see, I don't know if there are farms in Berkeley. There could be. And I don't think there are farms in Miami. But somewhere along the the way, found faith on a farm? So I went to seminary four years ago. And Mm -hmm. that was when I first became a farmhand. It was not really what my immigrant parents dreamed for their son. I can imagine. (laughs) To end up on a farm making $9 an hour working in the fields was not part of their plan for me. Uh, Uh But God is weird and has a twisted sense of humor. Amen. (laughs) And that was maybe the best educational experience of my life. Uh, Princeton Seminary has a 21-acre sustainable farm that doubles as a classroom. And you can take classes there. Uh, They are having this semester, for instance, a class on Luke at the table. So stories from the Gospel of Luke as well as Acts about eating together. And as part of the curriculum for that class, you farm together. It's a magical, inspired, and holy place. What was it for you? The farm has probably taught me more about slowing down than any place else in the world or in my life. Uh, It was started by a Mennonite uh, graduating PhD student named Nate Stuckey in 2015. Uh, It's actually called the Farminary, which is what it sounds like. Farm plus seminary equals farminary. Uh So I spent time growing things and harvesting things and maybe most importantly, uh, watching things die unexpectedly and then listening for God uh, while being on that land. I think we all know that land carries stories, right? Uh, Yeah. Land is a phenomenal teacher, and I think 
that's one lesson that we have failed to learn well from those who came before us. Uh, the land where the farm area is, that's traditional Lenape homeland. And we've lost so much of their wisdom because we haven't known how to listen well. How did it shape your faith? I think I hear you, but how, how did it shape your faith? So let me go back and tell you a little bit of my, about my grandmother. Um, uh-huh. My grandmother, her favorite psalm was Psalm 121. Uh, she uh-huh. and my preacher grandfather, they were refugees during uh, World War II when the Japanese invaded Hong Kong and southern China. Uh-huh. And they fled to a part of southern China that had dramatic mountains, super high peaks and deep valleys, kind of like what you might see in a Chinese landscape painting. Uh-huh. And one of the first passages of scripture that she taught me was Psalm 121. Uh-huh. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Right. Yeah. Um, I learned it in Cantonese. Uh-huh. So the point of that psalm is not that the help comes from the hills, but uh-huh. that it comes from the maker of the hills, uh, the one who sets all of creation into motion, uh, the God of the mountains and the seas and the humans and the animals and the v- vegetables and the worms and the compost. Hmm. Uh, so the biggest thing I learned at the farm um, well, you know, it's often said that each preacher only has one sermon. And if uh-huh. that's true, my sermon is about compost. Uh, it's about how <laughs> God has already etched a story about life, death, and resurrection into creation. Mm. And there's so much goodness waiting there, even amidst the inevitable sadness that comes with that cycle. Uh-huh. We just have to recognize and honor it. And I saw that cycle on the farm. So... Uh, the last time I was there was about a month ago. Not a lot seems to be going on uh, on farmland in the American Northeast in January. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there, where there were some tomatillos that had grown up last season, just sprung up on their own, uh, maybe it was some seeds that had been left over from the compost that we put on that soil. Uh, maybe it was where a tomatillo had been in a prior season. Uh, but in the middle of winter, there were these beautiful lacy little things on the ground, kind of like filigree. And if you picked one up, you could see little seeds inside it. Because what happens is a tomatillo gets ripe, and you know it's ripe when the husk starts to split. Uh, But at the farm and area, we're not professional farmers. We're not even particularly good at harvesting things when they need to be harvested. Uh, So nobody harvested these tomatillos. And you might say, and I might say, this tomatillo was wasted. Except it wasn't because the flesh of the tomatillo rots away and then the main parts of the husk rot away too, leaving this delicate lacy exoskeleton. And inside that exoskeleton are the seeds, which are the beginnings of a new generation, which are the promise of new life. So where we might see waste, God has already written in new possibility. Oh, Death becomes life. And I couldn't have learned that in a classroom, not in yeah. that way. My God, then sings my soul, my Savior, God, to thee, how great thou art. Wow. Now, you, now let me ask you this. You spent much of your adult career as a journalist. I did. As a person of faith. Trying how to did be. All, oh, yeah, like the rest of us. I know. 
<laughs> Sometimes I say, poor Jesus, he's got to put up with all of us. <laughs> I mean, it's like, gosh, sure. But you have, and you somehow you've lived in a very secular world and yet been a person who seeds in a blade of grass the hope of eternity. Help people like me. How do you do that, brother? It's taken a long time, and I'm still growing at it, right? But one of the mm -hmm. gifts that journalism gives a person when they practice it well is the gift of being attentive. I think when you grow up a non-white person in a white-dominant environment, mm -hmm. a gay person in a predominantly straight environment, you also learn to read every room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to listen yeah. differently. You have to perceive differently because you never know where you're safe. Mm -hmm. And I think that's painful in a lot of life, right? And it has uh -huh. been in a lot of my life. But it's also been such a gift in terms of my storytelling, in terms of walking into someone's kitchen or someone's office, seeing what's on the shelves, paying attention mm -hmm. to what it smells like, mm -hmm. listening for the things that you might glance over if you're used to walking into a room and dominating that room. I think that's one of the things that journalism trained in me and that life instilled in me. Mm. Tell us a little bit about your life as a journalist. So I started out at Time Magazine in London. I made myself useful as an intern doing mm. things that nobody else wanted to do, proofreading when it wasn't my job, butting my way into other people's business, which I guess is what good journalists do, right? <laughs> that's what they do, yeah. <laughs> we ask impertinent oh. questions and ask for people's stories. Yeah. So early on, I wasn't out yet. Uh, one of the funniest things was I got to do some glamorous assignments. I went to the set of a James Bond movie, the one that Halle Berry was in. Oh. And so I'm this closeted kid who is on a film set, which seems a lot more oh, glamorous geez. than it actually is because not a lot happens on a film set. Yeah. But the, the scene that was being filmed this day, and all my colleagues were so jealous, was Halle Berry in this bikini coming out of the ocean over and over and over again. And when I got back to the office, all the men were like, what did you do with yourself? And I'm like, <laughs> I had to pretend that I cared, right? Like, right. I, <laughs> I, I felt nothing. And look, Halle Berry's a beautiful woman. I have eyes. I can see that. But I felt nothing. Uh, and it was just kind of a lesson in that the Hollywood stories weren't the ones that drew me the most. Yeah. About a decade ago, I went to Rwanda. Uh, mm -hmm. By that point, I was working at Fast Company magazine. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was doing a story about Rwanda's complicated path out of genocide uh, and its attempts to cultivate something resembling prosperity. And one day I met a woman named uh, Marta Mukakalisa. She had survived the genocide. She was poor. Her husband was off serving in the army. She had four children. And her proudest possession at the time were her chickens and her cow. And we're mm -hmm. standing in her mm -hmm. kitchen, which doubles as her chicken coop. And we're standing there in piles of chicken poop. And mm. she is just radiating joy. She is a picture of hope and possibility. And she's mm. telling me about tending these chickens and this cow and how she's going to send her kids to school and give them a better life. And she's messing with my stereotypes about what mm. an entrepreneur looks like 
and what mm -hmm. success looks like and what joy and resilience look like. And she's complicating the narrative for me. Mm. That for me is what storytelling at its best does. It complicates oh. our narratives. Mm -hmm. It doesn't let us fall back on easy answers. I am so grateful for Marta and all the other seemingly ordinary but actually extraordinary people who have complicated my narrative. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes wonder whether the most dangerous thing we can do is to oversimplify narratives. And I say that because oversimplifying narratives means that we can both underestimate the gravity, for instance, of sin in the world, as mm -hmm. well as underplay the beauty and the power of love. Because mm -hmm. I think neither sin nor love is a simple thing. Right. And neither sin nor love shows up in an easily processed way, not if we try to understand it in its totality. And I think Jesus complicated narratives, right? Jesus okay. pushed back against how we wanted or were tempted to see people by class or by race or by background. And then the other part of Marta's joy about the chickens and the cow is I wonder now, 10 years on, whether it helped plant a seed in me, uh, pointing me to the love and the learning I would find years later when I became a farmhand and started raising yeah. chickens myself. Yeah. It's like she was taking you back to some of your deep roots yourself. It's roots, but also doing something prophetic, right? Yes. Because prophets plant seeds in us that we don't necessarily see fruition until years later. Mm -hmm. In the journalistic world, do people have conversations like this? Uh, on good days, journalists do have some profound conversations, at least in my experience. Really? I can only uh -huh. speak to working in the magazine world at a particular time in a particular place. Uh -huh. I remember working at Time Magazine, and Friday nights were special because we ate dinner together. Friday nights and Saturdays were when we closed the magazine, so we would eat together. And I think that unlocks something powerful in people yes. when you share meals. Yes. And then when you're working late into the night mm -hmm. on stories and packages about the world's great sorrow, and maybe you might have had a drink or two because mm -hmm. you've got to get through the night. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that unlocks some conversations about the meaning of life, the bigger questions, mm -hmm. how to make sense of the fact that we're publishing yet another article about war, yet another mm -hmm. article about a massacre, yet another mm -hmm. article about the changing climate and the suffering earth. Mm. It leaves you open in some moments, well, in some moments to just utter exhaustion and in other moments to the kinds of conversations that you end up having late at night with your belly full and your mind racing. And those are really special moments. I do worry that the way that journalism has changed in terms of speeding up, in terms of the need to post quickly, as opposed to the more slow and painstaking weekly work that we were doing at Time Magazine at the time, right. we've lost some of that metabolism. We've mm -hmm. lost some of those experiences where journalists are sitting together in a newsroom and spending mm -hmm. time together mulling over big questions. I was rereading um, William Shire's The Berlin Years, and and what sh struck me was how, I think, again, this was uh, print and, and radio journalism, but how much time they spent together just sitting, having drinks, talking in the midst of a world going crazy, and they were able to reflect on it and try to figure it out together 
when they had deadlines to meet as well. But they had this time and the space. I think we need to slow down. Mm-hmm. Part of the weekly rhythm at Time Magazine was that you did have a couple days a week where your job was to think. Your job mm-hmm. was to turn off the oppression of that constant news cycle. And with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and online media, you don't have rest. You don't have slowness. But honestly, the world isn't waiting for our instant commentary on every single thing that happens. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what if we took a minute or an hour or an afternoon, and I know everyone and every business has different constraints in terms of time, but what if we took a little bit of time to breathe and to get grounded Mm -hmm. and to remind ourselves of what it means to be human? I think that's returning to a tradition of Sabbath, right? Uh, Something Mm -hmm. that for many of us has been lost. But we all Mm -hmm. need restoration. And I think that that applies to our online lives as well as our offline lives. How do you do that for yourself now? Not very well, honestly. Oh, we're in the same fraternity then. (laughs) (laughs) I took a class at the farminary called Soil and Sabbath. And we looked at the need for land to rest, as well Uh as the need for creatures, including humans, to rest. Mm -hmm. And what our professor instilled in us was an understanding that Sabbath doesn't have to mean a dogmatic break in the week with these strict rules about what you can and can't do. Mm -hmm. It's really about real rest and reorientation. And if yeah. It's an hour that you can manage, then great. If it's 15 minutes during which you can remind yourself that God loves you and God holds you, that's great. If you're lucky enough that it's an entire day where you can shed distraction, uh, and for me, it's usually the distraction of my electronic devices, mm-hmm. that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we all need it. We all need to slow down. We all need yeah. to be reminded of who we are and who we're trying to be. We just don't do it enough. I think for me, the most restful times are in the kitchen because I love to cook. I love to feed people. And when I'm busy, I just don't prioritize that. You get swept up in that and you rest in it. It is the one time when I'm chopping uh, at my cutting board or stewing something where I have to be wholeheartedly attentive to that thing and not be consumed by the worry that dominates the rest of my life. I'm a worrier by nature. I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's just how I've been wired for whatever reason. But when I'm cooking, I I don't have the time or space or energy to worry. And it returns me, especially when I'm cooking for other people and Hmm. I'm being called to give as opposed to just focus on myself. Uh, I think it's restful. Kind of back at the farm. A different part of the farming cycle, I guess. Uh huh. <laughs> Take a moment and think of a time when an initial judgment you made about someone or something was inaccurate or flat out wrong. Would slowing down have helped in making a more charitable judgment? Why or why not? Stay with us for the second half of Bishop Curry's conversation with Jeff Chu, following this message from our sponsor. I'm going to ask you about your book, because I got a feeling um, 
it, it's going to speak to a lot of us. Um, the title of your book was Does Jesus Really Love Me? How did that come to be? What's it about? And does he? The book was a year-long journey across the theological spectrum and across America. Hmm. What happened was I'm this good Chinese Baptist boy who grows up, realizes he's gay. Usually that for many people, that realization comes before you're willing to name it out loud, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because there's a fear of what you're going to lose when you name that thing, when you defy people's expectations. And after I came out, I could not reconcile my faith and my sexuality. I didn't know how to mm -hmm. do it. Most of the influential people of faith in my life were telling me to repent. They were telling me to mm -hmm. stop being gay because they mm -hmm. believed it was a choice. And a few years into this journey, I had stopped going to church, but something was still gnawing at me inside. Then uh -huh. um, I have this friend, Beth, who works in publishing, and I still blame her for the book. Um, uh -huh. When you have friends <laughs> who believe in you, that's like the best and worst thing simultaneously because they see possibilities in you that you'd never imagine for yourself. But they mm -hmm. also push you where you're not comfortable going. So mm. I never believed I could write a book. Also, being a journalist is not something Chinese parents advocate for. Mm. And I think a lot of Asian American kids will understand if you're not a doctor, lawyer, engineer, and computer scientist, there's some shame there. Oh, so anyway, okay. my friend Beth thinks I should write a book. But as a journalist, I'm a generalist, which means I write a little bit about this, a little bit about that. I don't really know anything. And so Beth says, well, you know about being gay. And I, I said to her, I'm actually pretty bad at that. And then she said, you know about Jesus. And I said, well, a lot of people would say I'm really bad at that. Huh. But as she pushed me on this, I realized that maybe I could start reconciling my own faith story and my own sexuality story by doing the one thing I know how to do, which mm -hmm. is asking other people for their stories. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of books out there that tell you what to believe, whether you're a progressive or a conservative, whether your theology says gay people should be celibate or gay people can live a fully expressed um, life. Hmm. Plenty of people have argued from one perspective or another. And what I craved was stories where people mm -hmm. told me what their experiences were but didn't tell me what to do or what to believe. So I traveled. And I listened to stories, and I met everyone from Mary Glasspool, the first mm -hmm. uh, lesbian bishop in the Episcopal Church, to mm -hmm. the members of Westboro Baptist Church, which is probably theologically as opposite as you can get. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. And it was a transformative experience for me, uh, being willing to sit down with people who disagreed vehemently about what Jesus calls us to and who mm. God is and what love means. What did you hear from the folk at Westboro and from Bishop Mary? So here is the challenging and difficult thing to accept. And I still struggle with it some days. Both of them believe that they are forces of love in the world. They just define love and express love in incredibly different ways. Bishop Mary very memorably said to me that love is the only thing she's militant about. And I think that was a response to folks 
in the Episcopal Church in the U.S. as well as in the Anglican Communion worldwide who claimed that she was not militant about the gospel. She was militant about a gay agenda. And she was insistent. Love Mm -hmm. is the only thing that I am militant about. Westboro would say the same thing. They would say the most loving thing that they do is to warn people that they're going to hell. That's Mm -hmm. why, according to their theology, they do what they do. That's why they carry these signs that are noxious to the rest of us. Mm -hmm. So in a perverse way, both of them believe that they are on the side of love. And for me, that's something we really have to puzzle through. What does love feel like if the person to whom you're communicating love doesn't see it as love? What does love mean when it seems to be punitive to some people? Mm -hmm. When it seems to not fit into a framework where it's understandable? Communication, it's related to the word communion, right? There's an element of togetherness. There's an element of making sense to the other person. And I wonder if one of our struggles in the modern world is that we talk about concepts like love, but we're not actually communicating because we're not trying to figure out, okay, how does this sound to someone else's ears? How does it feel to someone else's heart? And I'm still wrestling with how to do that well, even uh, given the time I've been in journalism. Did they or have you seen what love looks like in their actual lives? Are you asking about Westboro's actual lives? Both them and Bishop Mary. Bishop Mary's testimony is incredibly powerful to me because she was answering a call Mm -hmm. at a time when that call was off limits to women. That, for me, is a profound expression of love, a love for God who she believed and still believes is the one who issued the calling, Mm -hmm. a love for the church, because she believed that she could be a force of good in the church and for herself. And I think that loving oneself is a prerequisite to loving one's neighbor well. So I see a lot of love in her resilience and her perseverance and now in her ministry, which clearly has been a source of great uh, nourishment to so many people in the dioceses where she's served. Westboro is a harder one for me, right? Because Uh they walk around with signs that say God hates fags. And I guess I am counted in that number. So it takes me a lot more steps to Uh get to a place where I can see love in what Westboro is doing. But I spent five days in Topeka with them and Uh then saw, I've seen them again multiple times. They picketed my publisher after my book came out. And I came to see glimmers of respect in what they do. So this is going to sound weird, but when I went to Westboro, they showed me the garage where they keep all their signs. So it's not just God God hates fags. They Mm -hmm. really customize their sign for the audience. So if they're protesting a Madonna concert, they'll have a sign that says, God hates Madonna. If they're protesting at a Kansas Jayhawks football game, they'll have signs that say, God hates the Jayhawks. And I was just being kind of a a cheeky jerk. And I was like, (laughs) you don't have one that says, God hates the Chinese. So later on, at a protest that they knew I would be at, they said, oh, we made you a sign. And it said, God hates the Chinese. (laughs) 
And it had one of those cartoon character Chinese people with the rice paddy hat and the slanty eyes looking all happy on it. Uh, And I guess in some twisted way, that was a gesture of affection. Yeah. Meeting me where I am in my Chinese-ness. When they picketed outside of my publisher, one of them had picked a sign. I think it said, mourn for your sins. She had picked Mm. a sign that she knew I could appreciate and get on board with. She said to me, Mm. I picked this one for you. And I was like, yeah, I'm on board with that. I do mourn for my sins. Thank you. Mm. And so there are these moments of humanity. Um, When they came to New York City to protest the first day of legalized same-sex marriage, uh, I asked if they would have lunch with me. And they said, sure. And they'd never had dim sum before. So we went to a Chinese restaurant for dim sum. And mm. I, I, I was a little bit strategic about it. I picked a restaurant that I knew most of the waiters and waitresses didn't really know English because I was worried that this band of protesters would show mm. up in their T-shirts that said, God hates fags. And it's just better if, if the yeah. waiters and waitresses can't read that, right? So... They had taken the trouble in the midst of their busy day of protest to buy those cheap T-shirts that you can get on the street in New York City to put Mm -hmm. over their T-shirts so they didn't offend me at lunch. Really? And so, like, one of them had a piglet T-shirt on, like, super thin white fabric. So under a piglet, you can see, like, God hates America. And another one had, like, a New York Yankees T-shirt. And underneath the Yankees logo, you can see the shirt saying God hates fags. They didn't have to do that, right? No, they didn't. And I know some people are going to listen to this and they're going to think, you're being an apologist for incredibly horrible human beings. Well, here's the truth of it. I'm reformed. That is my theology. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. I do not believe that in God's eyes, I deserve love or am unworthy of love more or less than those folks at Westboro Baptist Church. I don't believe that God's grace is for me or for them is more or less. I don't believe that their humanity is worth less than mine because I don't happen to walk around with signs that are horrible. Yes. I believe that in the eyes of God, our sin is equal and God's love for us is equal. Yes. And that's super hard. That is an equation that doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world. But it's what I'm left with. And so I choose to find these examples of respect and some people might call them love and some people might not, but I think there are seeds of good in all of us and there's the ability to do harm in all of us. And I'm not going to magnify my good and diminish theirs. And I'm also not going to minimize my evil and magnify theirs. I see how your book answered the question. It was a real question for me though. I was on a trip with my mother-in-law not too long after the book came out. And one night she said, Jeff, I really need to know, have you asked that question of yourself? Is that just for the book or was it real? Because if it's real, it breaks my heart. And I said to her, of course it's a real question because many of us, for whatever life circumstance, whether it is suffering brought on by poverty or trauma that has hounded you for years, or discrimination because of race or sexuality or the ongoing toll of white supremacy, there are times when God feels really far away. There are times where it seems completely unbelievable that a man who lived 2,000 years ago would have any kind of affection or feeling or relevance to you. 
That question for me is real. And especially because I grew up Baptist, you never really mm. lose that. How does that speak now to us in this country where the most liberal of us very often disdain to speak with the most conservative of us and the most conservative of us deign to speak to the most liberal? And you just, you can go on and on and on and on. I think it's so hard. It's safer to hide. It's safer to be in our respective camps. It's safer to circle the wagons and occasionally pop up on Twitter and lob a few shots at the people we perceive as being on the other side. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's really for me to tell other folks how to live. I do think I can remind those who identify as people of Christian faith Mm -hmm. that we need to remember that ultimately it is God who holds us. Our dignity is something that comes from God. And yet so many of us run around chasing for affirmation from people who agree with us, people who look like us, from the world around us. So what if we remembered that we're loved by a love that's so much greater than anything we can muster ourselves? What if we remembered that we've received a grace that we can't even begin to replicate. On my better days, I remember that there's nothing that any other human being can do to take away that dignity or that love or that grace. And I think that creates room for empathy because there's also nothing I can do to take away anyone else's God-given dignity and love and grace. But as I said, that's on my better days. You have a, a just a remarkable, I can hear um, Carl Bart singing through your words. I oh, mean, I hear, don't tell I my hear, seminary professors that they'll go. Crazy. Oh, I know, but but I mean the power of grace, the reality of the kind of grace of God that takes the form of love and all that stuff, that is frankly unnerving. It at its radical equality. It's all I have. Some people have asked me how I've managed to stay a Christian. And if I don't have an understanding of God's grace, I don't, I don't have any reason to go on. Mm. There have been things that have happened in my life, both things that have been done to me as well as things I've done, mm -hmm. that when I think about them, fill me with an incredible amount of pain and regret. And if mm. I don't, have grace to hold on to, I don't have anything else. So there are friends of mine, I have a cousin who identifies as an atheist, and she said, how did we grow up in relatively similar family circumstances? Hmm. Both of us experienced trauma as young people. How is it that you ended up staying in the church and I don't want anything to do with it? And I just think it's grace. Mm. I have no explanation for anything that I've done myself. I just know that it has been the story that has met me at times when I've needed it. It's all I've got. Amazing grace. It always goes back to those old church songs, huh? Yes, <laughs> it does. <laughs> it, I can it see the Baptist stuff ringing in you. <laughs> yes, it comes back. It's I mean, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. 
I mean, just those old songs. Because, you know, I really, I've begun to realize those songs weren't written in a studio. They were written on farms, like you described, and in fields, and in kitchens, and in places where people had to live. They were written out of suffering and sorrow a lot of the time. Yep. They were written in, in great pain. And I think that's what makes them great poetry mm -hmm. is the lived experience behind them. Now, Jeff, I have another question. You got an audience here. You got Episcopalians listening to this. I mean, a lot of other folk. I mean, it's a mix of folk. But what would you want to say to Episcopalians while you got our attention? What would I want to say to Episcopalians? I don't think it's much different from what I would want to say to anyone who claims to follow Jesus in this world. Mm. So I haven't been preaching very long. I preached my first sermon in 2016. Oh, wow. Oh. It was on Luke 8, where Jesus heals the Gerasene demoniac. Uh-huh. And I was preaching in a super progressive white congregation, very wealthy. And I'm pretty sure nobody in that congregation had heard anyone preaching on demons or evil spirits in a long, long, long time. I think that was a good assumption. But for those of us who come from non-Western cultures and backgrounds, this stuff is real. Mm -hmm. And what stuck with me from that passage is what Jesus says at the end, which I think we overlook, especially at a time where it's so easy to get self-righteous about the right person to vote for or the right policy on the right topic or what other people should do with their lives. Hmm. So after Jesus has healed the demoniac, he says one thing, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. It's not return to your home and tell others how to fix their lives. It's not return to your home and diagnose how screwed up the political system is and how your neighbor's political mm. opinions are wrong. Mm. It's not return to your home and instruct others on their need for redemption. No, it's return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Tell yes. your story. Express your gratitude. Talk about where God has met you in your suffering and in your joy and declare how God has loved you. And I think that's what sticks with me. What would the world look like if we spent more time expressing our gratitude and living that out? Because I don't think the declaration is just a spoken thing. We can declare what God has done for us through our actions, through the ways we love our neighbors, through the ways we invite people to share our space and our tables. I think that's what I would love to see Episcopalians and Anglicans oh. and Christians of any stripe do, what would it look like to declare how much God has done for us? Brother, that's a message. That's a message. You are a blessing, uh, but you've been a blessing to me and to all who will hear this. And you're one of God's blessings in this world. Thank, Thank you, you Bishop. That. Thank you so much, Bishop. I appreciate it. God bless you. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of The Way of Love with Bishop Michael Curry. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about Jeff Chu, visit his blog at jeffchu.substack.com. That's J-E-F-F-C-H-U dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. There, 
you can find his most recent reflections. If you'd like to know more about how you can begin the work of resting and having important and life-giving conversations, check out our show notes for an episode of Traveling the Way of Love, resources related to our civil discourse curriculum, and more. As always, you can learn more about Bishop Curry and the Way of Love, including how to create your own personal rule of life at episcopalchurch.org. Thanks this week to Jeff Chu, Bishop Curry, Jerusalem Greer, Chris Sikama, Jeremy Tackett, and Scott Van Pletzerans. I'm Sandy Millien, and I'll see you next time on The Way of Love. The way of Jesus is the way of love, and the way of love can change the world. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, Get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec.com. Love always.